Our first story today is a work of fiction by Eli Cash, born on May 22, 1965 in New York City. He has a distinctive voice, and he's known for his eclectic style and profound narratives. Cash has carved a niche for himself in the literary world with his unique blend of Western historical fiction and rich, complex characters. Raised in the bustling heart of Manhattan, Eli's early life was marked by an insatiable curiosity and a deep love for the arts. A childhood friend, the prodigious Tenenbaum siblings, he often found himself amidst a whirlwind of intellectual and creative fervor, which significantly influenced his early work. Cash's breakout novel, Old Custer, published in 1999, was a daring reimagining of American history, blending factual events with fantastical elements. The book was an instant success, celebrated for its bold narrative and vivid imagery. It catapulted Eli into the limelight, earning him a place among the literary elite. Despite his professional success, Cash's personal life was often a subject of public fascination and scrutiny. Known for his flamboyant attire and eccentric behavior, he became a staple in New York's social scene, mingling with artists, actors, and intellectuals. However, beneath the surface of his charismatic persona lay a tumultuous inner world marked by struggles with addiction and a relentless search for identity. Throughout his career, Cash has remained an influential figure in literature and popular culture. His works, characterized by their narrative depth and stylistic innovation, continue to expire and captivate readers worldwide. The Last Duel of Cornelius Cobb by Eli Cash in the heart of the American West, where the sun bakes the earth into hues of red and orange, there stood a town so small as barely a whisper on a map. This town, known as Whistler's Gulch, was home to the legendary Cornelius Cobb, the fastest gun in the West, or so the stories claimed. Cornelius wasn't your typical gunslinger. He was a philosopher of sorts, often seen reading Plato under the shade of the lone willow tree that graced the town. His revolver, named Socrates, was as much a part of him as his own shadow. One sweltering afternoon, as the sun hung lazily in the sky, a strange carriage rolled into town. It was made entirely of glass, glinting and shimmering like a mirage. Out stepped a woman, dressed in a suit of mirrors, her face hidden behind a veil of light. She called herself the Reflection and challenged Cornelius to a duel, not of guns, but of wits. The townsfolk gathered round as the Reflection posed her riddle. What can travel around the world while staying in a corner? Cornelius, with his philosopher's mind, pondered deeply. The sun continued its slow descent, casting long shadows across the dusty ground. Finally, Cornelius smiled and answered, A stamp! The crowd gasped, and the reflection, true to her word, conceded defeat. But then, with a laugh as clear as crystal, she revealed the true purpose of her visit. She wasn't there to duel Cornelius. She was there to recruit him. The reflection was a time traveler, journeying through history to gather the greatest minds for an intergalactic council, tasked with solving the universe's most complex mysteries. Cornelius, 
with his unique blend of gunslinging and philosophical thought, was her latest recruit. As the glass carriage disappeared into the horizon, transforming into a streak of light shooting up into the sky, Cornelius Cobb, the philosopher gunslinger, embarked on his greatest adventure yet, leaving Whistler's Gulch to become a mere footnote in the grand story of the universe. Our second story today is by Richard McMullen. He studied creative writing at the University of Massachusetts, originally from Boston. He was a social worker there, and he moved to New York to work for the publishing company McGraw-Hill. After that, he lived in Chicago as a publishing rep. And now, he lives in Rutland, in central Massachusetts. You can find him on LinkedIn and Facebook. Here is his work of fiction, called and uncalled for, by Richard McMullen. A perfect day, and not just because of the crystal blue sky, the slight breeze that blew across the sand, or the way the sun hit the beach as wave after wave crested and splashed against the shore. It was a perfect day for building sandcastles, exactly what Virginia's son was doing. Son was out of the hospital after several operations. He had recovered, and except for a slight limp, he was back to his old self. Now, he and another kid he'd just met were building a sandcastle at the water's edge. Of course, it wasn't a castle, but formless globs of sand surrounded by a moat. But they seemed to be enjoying themselves, as Virginia leaned back in her chair, stretched out her arms, took a deep breath, and smiled, watching them build their ridiculous creation. Indeed, this is one of those times, an occasion of happiness, no doubt about it, a day to remember. Hey, Mom, look what we found. It's just a dirty old bottle. Bring it over here, and we'll throw it away. It's got something in it, her son's friend said, holding the bottle high. She was a tall, thin girl who looked a few years older than Virginia's son and stared at the bottle as if they discovered the Hope Diamond. Okay, let me take a look at it. They ran up to Virginia, who put a towel around the bottle and held it with both hands. It was a thick wine bottle with amber glass, a cork, and a plastic cover with rusted wire. Virginia carefully untied the wire while her son and his new friend looked on, engrossed in the procedure, as if they were watching open-heart surgery. She continued pulling at the cork with all her might, but could not pull it out. Then... She dipped the head of the bottle into the burning sand, hoping the heat would loosen the cork. Sure enough, it popped right out when she gave the cork a few hard tugs. A piece of paper with writing was folded inside. What is it, Mom? her son asked. It's a note of some kind. Maybe it's from someone stranded on an island and they need help, her son's friend said. It's written in French, Virginia said, carefully taking the note out of the bottle and unfolding it. And there's a date at the top. God, it's been in the water for ten years. Can you read French? The little girl asked, so excited she almost fell over. Let me give it a try, Virginia said, holding the paper, which was in excellent shape given its age. Virginia slowly began translating as her son and his friend looked over her shoulder. My name is Marie, and who are you? I hope you're having a nice day. I live in a small town in southern France where I go to school when I'm not throwing bottles like this in the ocean. I'm so glad you found me, and I'm glad I found you. I hope you're having a very nice day, 
and a happy life. Virginia's son and his friend gave one another an astonished look and laughed. Wasn't that nice? Virginia declared. We should write a reply and send it back in the bottle. Could we? Her son and his friend asked. Why not? Virginia said as she took a notepad and pen out of her handbag. What do you want to say? Her son thought for a moment. We got your letter, and it was very good. If you ever come to America, I hope you'll visit us. I hope you're having fun wherever you are. Her son's friend added, You write very good notes. It was fun reading it, and I'm glad there are people like you in the world. Virginia wrote this down, dated it, and added her mailing address and email address at the bottom of the note. Do you think she'll get it? It's unlikely, but we should give it a try anyway. Can we send it back now? No. We'll have to take it home and seal the bottle. Then we can bring it back tomorrow and toss it into the water at high tide. I have to go, the girl said. Thanks for letting me write the note. Just as she said this, a lifeguard walked up to them. You know, you're going to have to bring that into the Parks and Recreation Department. It's state property. Just so you know. Then he walked off abruptly. Having done his duty for the Commonwealth. Jerk, Virginia muttered. The university campus where Virginia worked was teeming with excitement. News trucks from all over the world were everywhere. And crews were setting up cameras around the building of Virginia's chemistry department, shared with the astronomy department. By the look of things, some kind of event was about to occur. Something was definitely up. What's with all the news media? Virginia asked the receptionist as she entered the front office. <laughs> you mean you haven't heard? What planet have you been on? Oh, just at the hospital with my son, who was deathly ill. Oh, your son, right. Well, it's that signal the Webb telescope discovered. It's from a nearby star, Wolf something or another. I mean Wolf 1061? This always sounded like a radio station to Virginia. And, as it turned out, this was not far from the truth. I guess so. They think it's some kind of message, and they're going to use that new supercomputer we just got to decipher it. I guess the one at MIT is down. We're the only ones in the country who have a working tantrum computer. You mean quantum computer. Whatever. They've got a big screen set up in the astronomy lecture hall. The hall is packed. Chemistry, physics, astronomy, philosophy, everyone. Virginia was impressed. The thought of all these faculty members in the same room was astonishing, since most of them couldn't stand one another. For instance, Sarah Bernstein, head of the astronomy department, detested Sam Wilson of the physics department and spread a rumor that he had plagiarized a recent paper. David Loftwell of the philosophy department was having an affair with Marcia White of the chemistry department who was married to Jason Strong of the physics department, who had a gambling addiction, which Richard Riley of astronomy was happy to reveal to anyone and everyone. The campus was constantly abuzz with gossip, denunciations, and rancor. And the administration was no different. Michael Gomez, dean of students, was having an affair with at least two undergrads and was paying off his secretary to keep it quiet. So you had to be nice to her. The university led the world in several academic disciplines, but excelled in nastiness and vitriol. Virginia wondered if the students were being groomed to be jerks, too. We're sorry, but your paper wasn't snarky enough. 
You're only getting a D. So Virginia kept to herself, rarely socializing with the rest of the faculty and going off campus for lunch. She was hardly surprised that no one welcomed her back or asked her about her son or how she was doing. But that's the way they were. It was all business. What the hell? She had her molecules to attend to. And they never gave you a hard time, except when they refused to bond with other molecules. Science marches on. Her boss, Dr. Straussman, head of the chemistry department, saw her in the hallway and greeted her with a, we need to get to work on the new protein, Virginia, ASAP. And I hope you're doing well too, Virginia mumbled. What the hell? The prestige of a great university was at stake. The price you pay for being a chemistry professor at one of the country's leading universities, Virginia thought. She was about to enter her office when her lab assistant, Timothy, ran up to her. A first-year grad student who was at least 50 pounds overweight with long red hair, he was one of the few people on campus she could talk to. Good to see you back again, Virginia, he said breathlessly. How's your son doing? But before she could answer, he said, I've got to run. This thing's incredible. The signal's going to be deciphered any minute. You mean the signal from Wolf 1061? Right. It's going to be up on the screen in the astronomy lecture hall any minute now. The lecture hall was packed with faculty members, grad students, reporters, and their camera crews. It was almost impossible for Virginia and her lab assistant to open the door. After pushing and shoving, they could finally squeeze into the auditorium. Dressed in his best three-piece suit, standing six foot three with a mane of white hair, the Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist Jason Bernard cut an August figure and could not have seemed more pious, looking directly into the news camera as if he were about to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. We are here today to witness the most significant event in the history of the human race, possibly in the history of our galaxy, our Max 2 quantum computer is about to decipher a message intercepted by the Webb telescope and sent directly to Earth from Wolf 1061. We will all remember this moment for the rest of our lives. Even those not here today will remember what they were doing and where they were on this wondrous day. What you're about to witness on this screen will stay with you forever and will be passed on to your children and your children's children. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Gasps of awe filled the auditorium. Some of the faculty members even looked like they were about to cry. Dr. Bernard, the signal is about to be revealed, one of the engineers announced. All eyes were fixed on the giant computer screens. Virginia reached out and held her lab assistant's hand, whose palms were sweating, she could almost hear the chords of Thus Spoke Zarathustra in the background. Slowly, the words appeared on the screen, and a robotic voice announced, So what? So what? What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means the existentialists were right all along. That's it. The existentialists were right. If only Sartre had lived to see this day. The lone phenomenologist in the philosophy department gloated while the logical positivists hung their heads in shame. Victoria and her assistant gave each other a quizzical look. There's more to the message than that, the engineer shouted. There are seven words in the message. The rest of the message is about to appear. 
The entire auditorium stared at the screen as if their lives depended on it. So what's with all? Oh, it's beautiful. It's so profound. It's about all that is and all that will ever be. It's about the totality of the universe, a woman shouted. It has to be. I never thought. I'd never thought I'd live to see this day, the man standing next to her declared. Wait, there's more, an engineer announced. There has to be. There are seven words, and here it comes. The excitement in the room was palpable, and people literally held their breath. Bernard looked down at them benevolently and with a look of studied wonder. So what's with all the assholes? These words, direct from Wolf 1061, appeared in bold black letters as the robotic voice announced the question over and over again. Everyone in the room was shocked, except for Virginia, who was about to laugh out loud. She checked herself when Dr. Straussman gave her a look. It needs editing, the head of the English department declared. Perhaps the last word isn't just a crude profanity, but actually a part of the anatomy. Maybe they don't have them on their planet, and they're wondering why we do. Maybe it's a code of some kind, the head of the philosophy department stated. It can't be, you moron, Bernard shot back. The whole point behind the quantum computer is that it precisely decodes the light signal into perfect English. It's been hacked a reporter yelled. All eyes turned to the head of the computer science department, who looked horrified. His face was bright red, and his eyes looked as if they were about to pop out of his head. Virginia was afraid he was going to have a heart attack or a stroke. That's impossible, Bernard said. You can't hack a quantum computer, at least not yet. A long silence followed. Then Bernard looked out over the audience and announced in a deep, solemn voice, it means what it says. And as he said this, the robotic voice announced the message again. So what's with all the assholes? Shut it down! Shut that thing down now! Bernard yelled. The message disappeared while the people in the auditorium continued to stare at the screen with looks of shock and disgust. A strange silence filled the room. The most important day in the history of the human race had turned into the most humiliating Finally, a graduate student broke into a laugh. Everyone glared at her. It was as if she were laughing at a wake or at an assassination of the president. I'd wipe the smile off my face if I were you, her advisor said. She immediately apologized and left the room. We're through here for today, Bernard announced, his face contorted with cosmic humiliation as he stormed off the stage. Slowly, people started to leave the auditorium, expressing outrage as they did. The indignity, the sick shame of it all, the effrontery. It was a horrible thing for them to say to us. How could they even think such a thing? They're idiots. They're a disgrace to the Milky Way. Other star systems are going to hear about this. No, I wouldn't. We don't want to give them the wrong idea. Perhaps. But I hope their star burns out soon. No. They're about a billion years away from that. A mere second in intergalactic space-time. I'd damn well like to see it when it does. And on it went for the rest of the day, except for a group of about 200 students who met at the campus mall just outside the astronomy building. 
One of the students played a few chords on her guitar into a microphone and then yelled, So what's with all the assholes? Which her audience repeated with relish, then broke into fits of laughter as they passed joints back and forth. When Bernard saw this, he ran up to them, grabbed the microphone and screamed, You miserable little bastards, I'll flunk you, I swear to God, I'll flunk you. If any of you ever takes one of my courses, you'll get an F. Do you hear me? An F. He then pulled out the 38 Special and fired it into the air. Two campus cops tackled him and pulled the gun from his hand. He was carried off, kicking and screaming. It was decided that anyone using the term asshole would be immediately expelled. From now on, it would be called the A-word. It was taken up by every campus in the country and most newspapers. A special session of the United Nations was convened. Various responses were suggested. Some recommended a simple complaint expressing regret that an advanced civilization could stoop so low. Others recommended a slew of equally vulgar responses. The Irish ambassador suggested sending a message that said, it takes one to know one. This caused the Indian ambassador to laugh so hard that his drink came up through his nose. Finally, they decided to ignore the message and act as if the star system did not exist. There would be no response. It doesn't deserve any, the Secretary General announced. They decided to consider Wolf 1061 a pariah and never to communicate with the star system again. No signal emanating from the star system would ever be received again. No contact whatsoever would be allowed. Let them send their idiotic messages elsewhere. Earth is done with Wolf 1061. Serves them right, the New York Post front page read. Virginia looked at her watch. Shit, it's high tide. What? Her lab assistant asked, putting a test tube back on its rack. I promised my son I'd take him to the breakwater when it's high tide. She threw her jacket on and ran out of the lab while her assistant scratched his head and mumbled. Don't want to miss that. It only happens every day. It was a misty late afternoon with a gray sky, a fine day for bottle tossing. Virginia's son stood outside the school entrance. When he got into the back seat of the car, she looked into the mirror and could tell he'd been crying. Something was wrong. Someone must have said something. What is it? Nothing, he replied, sounding like he was about to break up again. Well, it sounds like something to me. What happened? They called me Pegleg. Jesus. Why do they say things like that, Mom? Her son asked, about to cry again. Sometimes people are just mean. Sometimes they think they're being funny when they're really just being stupid or cruel. But usually, they're just being ridiculous. You know, like when they fart. This made her son laugh. She gave him a Kleenex to blow his nose and wipe away the tears. Hey, when we get home, let's clean up and take that bottle out of the breakwater and give it a good send-off. Can I throw it in the water? Of course. You found it. Since it was a chilly gray day, no one could watch them launch their bottle when they reached the breakwater. Virginia and her son had the Atlantic Ocean all to themselves. What's in the message? Her son asked. Why, what you and your friend wrote, of course. Oh, and I added something. What? We hope you're very nice people, but even if you're not, we hope you'll like this message and we're glad you found it. 
Here, you get to do the honors, she said, handing the bottle to her son. He held it briefly, looking slightly confused, then threw it as hard as he could into the water. They watched it bob up and down like a buoy as the current carried it to sea. That was fun, Mom, he said, putting his arm around her. We have more fun than anyone. Do you think they'll get it? I don't know. But does it really matter? After all, it's the thought that counts. Our third story today is another work of fiction by Paul Lucart. Paul is the author of the short story collections Animal Heart by Hyperborea Publishing, 2016, Brief Instructions, Ghostbird Press, 2017, Metropolia, Ghostbird Press, 2021, The Museum of Heartache, Pisky's Porch Publishing, 2021, and The Realm of the Dog, forthcoming from Janie Books in 2024. He serves as an adjunct professor of fiction writing at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He and his family live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Point Park by Paul Lucart. I'm a photographer with a little business growing. April to May, May to June this year will finally pay the rest of the year's bills. Barely. One day, I always tell myself I'll be able to pick all of my own projects. Call my own shots, bang, bang, clubesque, Pulitzer shit. I'd say I'm on my way. Anyway, a couple days ago, my stepbrother Mark called me up. Big favor to ask, Mark said. Yeah. Connor, this fraternity brother of mine. Connor was eloping, and the girl sounded fine. Not sure what they planned to do it that way. But Connor's family has money, according to Mark, and Connor has a lot of that money. And I guess that Connor could do whatever he wanted, and truly, nobody would care. So, they're going to dress up like they're having a church wedding? Tux, gown, the whole thing, I said? Yeah. And I take the pictures? Also, like it's a church wedding? Yeah. But then, they what? Just head for Vegas or something? That's the idea. Mark's voice sounded excited. Like he was the one eloping. I was quiet for a while. I guess because, Mark said, he'll pay you really well. All right, all right. I pinched the bridge of my nose. What time? Where? Point Park, up the mountain, Saturday, when the sun comes up. When does the sun come up? That's not a time. Just sunrise. I don't know. Look at your weather app. Will they? But Mark had already hung up. Point Park, up in the clouds, at the far north end of Lookout Mountain. Some of the oldest money in the South lives up there, from Coca-Cola, back when they started to bottle that shit. But everybody knows where old Southern money really comes from. They hoarded it now, like they hoarded snow, if it ever snowed in January, so nobody else down below could have any. Mountain people, the unsullied overlords. I never liked to go up there. Beautiful shots of the city, the river, all those greened-over canyons but it's a dead kind of feeling. I woke up before my alarm Saturday morning, smoked a joint, and when the stars began to wash out of the night sky, I thought about the Beatles. Here comes the sun. I got up, got ready, threw my gear into the car. Driving to the top of the mountain is like tooling along the spine of a copperhead. Nobody was awake yet up there. All the great old houses loomed caped with shadows, eaves like heavy eyelids, not a crinkle of light in a single window. 
I parked in front of the Civil War gift shop. And of course, goddammit, Point Park's medieval gates. There was a fucking fee to get in, a turnstile in the castle walls. I forgot about that. And the park wasn't even open yet. There were business hours. I texted Mark, I'm up here. The fucking place is closed. So jump the fence. He had probably never gone to bed. Am I really going to find these people in here? They're in love, bro. On the other side of the fence, the park was chipped with shadows and meager light. No bangarang sunrise, nothing glorious. Daylight, but not wedding sun. Only a gray glow that hadn't been there a couple hours ago. How the universe says congrats to a bride and groom who don't give enough of a shit about their families to hold a real wedding and invite people. But what do I know? If the rich have one thing in common with the rest of us, it's surely the capacity to fuck up their kids. I wandered to the rim. The mountain ends in fog and air, and the land slopes sharply, deeply, toward I-24 and the river. Somewhere down there, the river doubles back on itself, a bite like a moat for the state mental hospital. Again, funny. This heavenly attic and all you can see from up here, all you can disregard down there. Owls, at least one, I heard it. Other birds, too, awake now and pecking the dirt cheeping to each other in shrill patterns. My footsteps sounded alien, extra low. All the twigs, hollow little microbones, kept snap, snap, snapping underfoot. Who'd bear their rings for this thing, a vulture? Finally, I found them, down on a rock, a flat slab like an end table jammed against the mountainside. Asleep? Splayed out anyway, backs to one another, like gussied up track stars leaping for different finish lines. Yo, Connor, I'm the photographer, I hollered. I'm Mark's stepbrother. They didn't move. I hollered again, louder this time, further busting up the morning, and again, nothing. Scream at them a third time? A charm? Really? Go ahead and keep the money. Have a nice life, you fuckers. Cheers, huzzah, and mazel tov. But then, duh, idiot, they fell. They must have fallen, slipped and tumbled. Or one of them fell first and the other fell trying for the rescue. They must have been standing right here, loving the love in one another's arms when gravity snuck up and grabbed their ankles. Holy shit. Hold on. Holy shit. I scrambled down, grabbing thorny roots, palming the moss-coated granite chunks. 20 feet or so, 30? I would break my neck for star-crossed strangers. Little dirt clods and rock shards led the way, having the form and intention of an avalanche on the Matterhorn, just not the scale. Down there, amongst them, though, it was a different story. A mess. A gigantic fucking mess. Empty, dusty Ziploc baggies. Orange-amber pill bottles with the labels scraped off. Cigarette butts in a flask. They'd scattered them all like rose petals. Their faces matched, pallid, ghastly, Sallow skin and bloodless, open cuts for eyes, just thin, watery white lines between all four sets of eyelids, and the smell, woe, an invisible demon. One or both of them had shit themselves. Both were barefoot, and maybe they'd kicked off their shoes, and maybe their shoes had bounced down the mountainside, and maybe their shoes had kaplooshed into the river. I dug out my phone and called 911. Are they unconscious? Definitely. Are they breathing? I can't tell. You have sunglasses? 
Yes. Hold one of the lenses over their mouth and look for fog. I grab my sunglasses off my head. Okay, I see it. There's fog. Barely. Be ready to direct the responders to their location. Okay, what do I do in the meantime? Hang tight. Don't go anywhere. So I just stood there, like God, inspecting a failed experiment. I think I should have felt more. Badly, I mean. Sympathy or disgust or scared shitless or something. But they were funny looking, these two. All dolled up and way overdosed. I saw there was dew in their skin, sprouting on them like diamond mushroom caps. Or maybe that was sweat. Or both. How'd they talk? What'd they say to each other? I love you, baby. Oh, I love you too. All the way. I love you, baby. Love you, love you, love you, love you. I took out my phone again, squatted, shoved the camera right up to their cheekbones and started clicking the shutter button. I stood up and kept going. Her first, then him, then both of them, adjusting the framing, the filters, the distance. I spit on my hand and smoothed his hair and bloused her dress. I took his right hand, his upward-facing arm was the right, and her left hand and laced their waxy fingers together so they embodied some kind of Romeo and Juliet bad kids love bind. So much love, so much love, so much love. I heard the sirens, an ache for the morning, growing, reddening. They'd be upset, all those drowsy mountaineers. Quick, I flipped Connor onto his side, then her so they faced each other. Do you? Do you? I heard and I do. Well then, by the power, I now pronounce, you may kiss, and now, for the first time, may I present... If you'd like to submit, you can submit to have your story or essay read on the podcast at jnewbooks.com. We've also changed the contest from a weekly contest to a monthly contest. Once we start getting more entries, we'll do it weekly. But for now, the prize, the grand prize, will be awarded monthly. And we will announce our first winner in February. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to us on Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts. So when we release a new episode, you will be automatically notified. We're going to end this episode again with the first single from dear friend Blood Moon, just because they're from my hometown and I like the song so much. Hailing out of Royers Ford, Pennsylvania, here is dear friend's first single, Blood Moon. Just 
You're so afraid 